been some couple weeks in the Cleveland sports scene, hadn't it? You know, I mean, I'm still kind of basking in the glow of the Cavs NBA championship. Down three games to one, folks. And that was an amazing ride, wasn't it? It just was great. And we're not done. Because this is going to be a heck of a summer because the Tribe just rattled off 14 straight, setting a franchise record. It's going to be a fun summer, I'm telling you, in the sports scene, if you're a sports fan. But I've got to tell you, I think I, I, what makes me just so joyful to now call myself a Clevelander was there was a Nike ad that came out the day after the Cavs victory and it used Mike Snyder's voice from WTAM in the soundtrack and they had to be professional actors because they knew Cleveland well enough after 52 years of a drought of any kind of a championship and they showed these faces of just stunned disbelief that oh my gosh <laughs> we're gonna win you know, it was amazing. And you heard Mike Snyder go, we've been with LeBron. We were with Kyrie from Lakewood to Avon to Akron. And all these faces were just in dumbfounded laughter. And my favorite of all the actors was there was a reporter. The light comes on her. She starts to put the microphone up and says, <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> It was hilarious. And then they hit you this little boy with a Cavs jersey, and then they just erupt with this crowd of noise. Just finally, we've won. See, you don't get tired of winning. I got news for you. I've been here before. That's why Kimmy and I were just rejoicing with all of you. You know, in 1983, when we lived in Maryland, the, the, the Orioles won the championship. In 1987, the Redskins, and they've won three championships, being a Redskins fan, and going, moving to Pittsburgh, you know, I lived in Pittsburgh, they won a couple Super Bowls, and the Penguins have won two Stanley Cups. Winning never gets old. <laughs> it's fun! We weren't in so much dumbfounded belief, but we counted down. We were going five, four, three, two, one, and Kimmy and I jumped up, we hugged one another, and she just kept laughing. I'm so happy for Cleveland, you know? And I, I, I opened up the door, and Sherlock ran out, and I listened to my neighbors celebrate. You know, it was great. Fireworks were going off. What a wonderful, joyful celebration and lots of laughter. Finally, it came to us. Today, we see laughter in our passage in a different way. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21, because we're going to see the implications of this type of laughter that teaches us some great realities in the kingdom of God. Yes, we're jumping. Those of you who were with us last week, we were in Genesis, the end of 18 last week. I'm jumping, you know. I'm passing 19 and, and, and 20 because I just couldn't handle any more darkness. I'm not going to lie. I just, you know, I studied those texts, you know, and there's lots of redeeming work in those texts, but we've been through a lot in nine years. I just didn't need any more. I, I, mean, I guess I've got to be honest with you. And so there's lots of good things to learn in the story of Lot not finishing well. Read it yourself, all right? <laughs> there's lots of good things to learn about Abraham failing again, giving Sarah away. Say she is my sister. She's not his sister. It's his wife. And uh, Abraham fails again. And I, I just couldn't do it. So we're jumping to the baby today, because I'm always a, I love babies. And so uh, read them yourself. They're great. It's great passages. There's good stuff. 
and we're an expository preaching church, but we would just go to here today. And so let's look at this passage. We're going to see laughter in our passage and the implications it has for each and every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see is God is true to his word in his timing. Two, we're going to learn that the fulfillment of his being true to his word leads to a life of obedience and walking with him. And three, we're going to learn that such promise gives us great hope for the future. All right? Those are the three great truths we learn. Number one, God is true to his word and his timing. Two, God's fulfilled promise leads to a life of obedience. And three, God's fulfilled promise gives us great hope. Let's look at this. First thing is God is true to his word in his timing. Verses 1 through 3, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. This is the most celebrated pregnancy in all of human history. I mean, having your first baby at 90. Now, the fact people lived a little longer back then, she probably looked like she were in his mid-60s, but that's not the point. She was beyond childbearing years, friends, and this is a miracle. God has answered her prayer. For to be a barren woman in the ancient world was a great shame. I'm so happy for Sarah and Abraham, but especially Sarah, because a woman that's barren is considered cursed. And, and here, she's pregnant. And I'm sure when she first found herself pregnant, she goes, Oh my gosh. She probably kept it to herself. But then it became a little obvious. And I'm sure she told Abraham, I'm pregnant. And remember, Abraham never had a physical home. He was a sojourner. He lived in a tent. And I'm sure in little Abraham's tent city, probably like a, a, a little KOA, if you will. You know? You, those of you who know KOA campgrounds, you know? But that's what it is like. All these tents everywhere. It spread, and it spread like wildfire, that she's pregnant. God is being true to his word to her, and there was great celebration. After nine months of preparation, she holds baby laughter in her arms, and God is true to his word. Notice in verses 1 and 2, it's stressed three times. Look down at the text. It says three times, as God says, as he had promised, of which God had spoken to him. See the point that Moses is making? God is true to his word. See, they had believed God partially, but not fully. God spoke to them in chapter 12. God spoke to them in chapter 15. God spoke to them in chapter 17. God had spoken to them in chapter 18. I will do this. I will do this. And they didn't quite embrace it fully. So they, God waited until the right time. And so a year early, Sarah had utterly discounted God's word. And she had laughed. You know, you're gonna, he, she heard through the curtain of the tent, you will have a son. I'll come back next year and you will have a son. And she, <laughs> right. So God looks at Abraham and goes, why did Sarah laugh? But then, verse 1, God visited her. That's a special word. The Hebrew word pakad. It's a special word. It means to attend to, to muster upon, to visit upon, to appoint, 
to look after, to care for. This is a special divine invitation that will bring a blessing to the person visiting. She will have a baby, barren after 90 years, and it would alter the destiny of the people of God from that time forward. And they now knew that God is faithful in every detail of his word. And because they know it, now we know it. The birth of Isaac is a precise, empirical validation of God's promise. A 90-year-old nursing mother carrying a baby. Exactly. It's profound evidence of God's true to his word. And it's for us as well. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. This is a solemn declaration by the one who himself is the yes to all the promises of God. All the promises in Scripture are fulfilled in Jesus. And it means that you and I can and as Christians we must trust every syllable of God's word. This is the way every Christian is meant to live. In deepest trust in all of God's word, just as Jesus lived. For God is true to his word, and his timing is perfect. Notice it says that Sarah bore Abraham a son in his old age at what? The time of which God had spoken to him. This has been mentioned first in Genesis 17. My covenant I will establish with Isaac. God names the child whose Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Reiterated twice in chapter 18. Verse 10 of chapter 18, I surely will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Four verses later, God says, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Catch the repetition? God is true to his word, and the promise is fulfilled, and it's neither early nor is it late. It's at the time of which God had spoken to him. One of the hardest things in all the Christian life is what seems to us to be delays in God's actions. Amen? We pray, the answer is delayed, and what do we do? We get angry, we fret, and sometimes we attempt to work out an answer for ourselves. If God won't do it, I will. And that's what they did. You know, they brought Hagar, and they had Ishmael through Hagar. But when we do take matters in our own hands, my friends, we're not trusting the Lord. We're doubting either God's ability to do what he has promised in our lives or God's timing. And just like God was forming faith in Abraham and Sarah, he's forming faith in you and me. And we need to trust God at his word and be faithful and if necessary, wait. We waited four and a half years for this building. We did the right thing. We didn't rush. We prayed. We saw it. I thank God for the vestry. They hung with me. They could have gone to the bishop and said, get rid of this guy. They didn't. They hung in there. We hung in there together. And because, look what the Lord's doing. We can't go to two services in the summer. We'd be too big. It was packed at 930, friends. We couldn't have fit. Praise be to God. God's timing is perfect. And so his answer to our prayers is yes or 
no, but usually, before he answers, it's wait. That's the normal Christian experience for each and every one of us. So get used to it. Let's be faithful and recognize that he's God and we are not. And don't make him a genie in a bottle. His timing is perfect. That great pastor G. Campbell Morgan, Scottish pastor, on waiting on God's timing says, Waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means, first, activity under command. Second, readiness for any new command that may come. And third, the ability to do nothing until the prayer is answered. That's a good word. Friends, God is true to his word, and it's in his timing. He is so. Secondly, the fulfillment of his promises provides an opportunity for us to be obedient, to walk in it. The depth of Abraham's joyous celebration and belief was immediately evident in his naming Isaac and circumcising Isaac. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah had born him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. The name Isaac literally means in Hebrew, laughter. And every time they called his name, they were reminded of their laughter and skepticism and that God is faithful to his timing. And it's because of that, he was obedient. God had countered laughter with laughter. That God would have the last laugh in Abraham and Sarah's life. And because Abraham held laughter in his arms and God had been true to his word and his timing, Abraham was obedient in having him circumcised, for that's what God's covenant people did. Demonstrating true faith. Because true faith is an obedient faith, ladies and gentlemen. This isn't the case as so many of our culture who make God into the hey, who they want him to be. And then they'll be obedient to the God of their creation, not the God of the revelation of the scripture. But what we see is, in Abraham, a faith crafted over years and years of trusting and waiting, and sometimes failing. Coming back to the Lord as they fail, recognizing that the Lord answers prayer, and as the Lord responds back to us, we walk in the revelation of that truth. It's a response to the Lord's grace to him, not an effort to earn God's grace. Totally different from what the world thinks, right? See, Abraham wasn't saved, as we heard read in Romans 4, by his obedience. He was saved by his faith in God. Saving faith is not believing that God is there. Saving faith isn't believing in a God who sees. It's believing God when he, he promises a way of salvation through grace. You can have lots of strong faith that God exists, that he's loving, that he's holy, you can believe that the Bible is God's holy word. You can show great reverence for God, and yet all the while you're seeking to be your own savior and justifier by trusting in your own goodness, your own way of doing Christianity, like so many people do. Your own moral character, being a good parent. But saving faith, according to the scripture, is a trust transfer from your own works to Jesus Christ to remove your hopes and trust from those things 
and to place them alone in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Because that's what Abraham did, even though Jesus hadn't been born yet. Remember, it was Abraham believed in the Lord, chapter 15, and it was credited to him as righteousness, as Paul quoted in Romans 4. So my question this morning to you on this seventh week of Pentecost and on Independence Day weekend, are you certain you would go to heaven? Are you certain? If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Because the people who try to craft their own God typically say something like this, well, because I've tried my best to be a good Christian. Or, because I believe in God and I, I try to do his will. Or, because I believe in God with all my heart. All those answers are wrong. Ultimately placing the work of salvation upon that individual. And when you do so, you miss the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ. Such a life will lead to insecurity, anxiety, lack of assurance, pride, oversensitivity to criticism, and devastation when there's a moral lapse. See, Abraham's faith that we see in God at this point cuts against the religious and the irreligious, just like our Lord Jesus does. Tim Keller says, if faith equals obedience, you're placing your faith in yourself and your abilities. This will lead to boasting and pride or to despair and self-hatred if you fail. But if faith equals trust in God's promises to save, then you're placing your faith in God and God alone. That leads to humility and confidence, which is, as we have seen that Abraham discovered, a life of obedience where true freedom is found. Oswald Chambers wrote of the young king of England, Edward VI, that when he would go to worship services, he would stand as the word of God was read. And as he was standing, he'd take notes during this time, and he would study them throughout the week. And earnestly, he would try to apply the truth of God that he had learned throughout his week. That's the kind of serious-minded response to truth that the Scripture calls for in the believer's life. A single revealed fact, he writes, cherished in the heart and acted upon is more vital to our growth than a head filled with lofty ideas about God. One step forward in obedience is worth years of studying about it. My friends, let us place our trust in Christ's work alone upon the cross and live unto that for our salvation. Finally, from this obedient walk, because God's true to his word in our lives and his timing, the fulfilled promise prompts a life of great hope. Look what Sarah sings. This is a song. Just like Mary's Magnificat, Sarah sings, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She's 90 years old. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It just calls back to her mind the earlier chapter. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. That's her point. She has learned that now. It took a year, but she learned it. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. 
See, God commanded Noah to build an ark because he was to bring judgment upon the world. Everyone laughed at Noah as he and his family constructed this ark. It took him about 100 years. Flood came. He protected his people in the ark as a symbol of the ark of the protection of our faith in Jesus Christ. God commanded an 80-year-old. You think you're done with ministry? Oh, no, I got ministry for you. Noah, Moses was 80 when God called him. 80. That you, Moses, will lead a million people out of Egypt. Slaves in Egypt. And they will be my people to be a light to the world. And he did. He told David, David, there will never lack a throne in Israel. There will always be a king on the throne in Israel. Well, how'd that work out? The kings didn't do so well. But ultimately, a king came. How did he come? By a miraculous birth. To a virgin. A miracle birth. In God's appointed time. And what did Mary do? She rejoiced and says, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She sings a song just like Sarah. And the angels kept on singing at Jesus' birth, glory to be God on high and peace to his people on earth. Because when God touches you this way, your heart sinks. And it's a contagious faith. You can't keep it in. For God has fulfilled these promises, and there is nothing too difficult for the Lord. I hope you heard our passage in Romans where it tells us that these events in the life of Abraham were not written for him alone. They were written for us that what we might believe, like Abraham, and have the righteousness of God credited to us as it was also credited to Abraham. And from such grace springs great hope. In this life and in the next, it's that you and I might believe in God, who does miracles and bring us to trust in Jesus alone. And the greatest miracle is not a physical healing. The greatest miracle is not the fact that he's answered my prayer for a new job or whatever prayer concern that God has answered in the past year to you. The greatest miracle is a changed heart. Because that's what he's in the business of doing. Changing hearts today in this way to respond back to the grace that's offered in Jesus Christ. We can take God at his word and his timing. We can walk in his ways as a response to this grace. And such grace gives us great hope. In closing, there was a day when you picked up your date, you really cleaned out your car, right, men? My first date. My brother changed cars every six months. It was a hobby of his. And in March of 1980, he decided to buy a 1958 Chevy Corvette. That's what we all said. Nice. And I asked this cute Kim Cordova out on a date. And so our first date was in a 1958 Corvette. Now, Bo made me rent it. <laughs> because that's my relationship with my brother. Hey, Bo, can I borrow the car? He knew I didn't want to drive the 1964 Ford Fairlane station wagon. He said, sure, for 10 bucks. <laughs> All right, 
Just, that was just the, my cost of dates. It just, you know, I had to rent the nice car. So I cleaned it out, and I started to polish with the Simonized. And I polished, and I polished, and I polished. And it was Corvette cool, navy blue with white trim on the sides. Just Google it. It was a beautiful car. I share that with you as we went on our date, first date. We only went out to Pepper's Texas Barbecue in Fairfax, Virginia. It was great. It was our favorite place to eat. But I share that with you as Christians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that we too have the inner potential to shine for him. Jesus calls so to shine for him in the passage I read. But as we go through life, the sheen gets dulled by the accumulation of the road film of self-centeredness, sin, unconfessed, the worldliness that we let creep into our lives. But chief among God's ways of bringing out the shine in our lives is the buffing action of trials. The buffing action of waiting. To having to get vacuumed out by God's grace. And we turn to him. Have you ever noticed that sin never feels like sin when you do it? That's a fact. But when we live God's ways, don't create God into our little God, but we live unto God's truth and freedom. That's where we find the true freedom that we're really looking for. And as we do so, the result is a renewed, buffed-out luster that shines the grace of Jesus Christ through. And it shows the character of Jesus with great hope and great joy. You see, you don't have to muster up this. It's all on the cross for you and me. The process of knocking off our rough ages and polishing our characters through the repeated trials and buffetings is God-ordained. So let's trust God at his word. Let's live lives of obedience out of response to this grace. And let's live lives of hope in this world because there's great hope for the next. Let's pray.